stand for the reading of God's Word. We're in Nehemiah. For those not familiar with Scripture, Nehemiah is, uh, you go to the middle of the book, there's all the Psalms, you turn left, you'll find Nehemiah among the, the, the former prophets, the, uh, the historical books. And uh, we are in Nehemiah 9 in particular today, starting in verse 16. Nehemiah says this, uh, in the middle of a prayer being pray, prayed by the priests, it says, But they, that is the Israelites, and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light them for them the way which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and you did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. And you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued them before the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into the land with their kings and the people of the land. And they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they, had re- they ha- after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had the dom- dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. You may be seated. One of the most gripping war movies to come out in recent memory is uh, Saving Private Ryan. I'm sure for many of us men, we love that movie. It's all about a troop of army rangers from World War II who trek across France uh, right after the invasion of uh, Normandy. And uh, in order to find a particular private and another uh, platoon named James Ryan, apparently Ryan was... Uh, according to the story, the last surviving son of a woman who had many sons, all of whom but R- James Ryan had died in World War II. Uh, the, the Rangers were led by, of course, the venerable Tom Hanks, and, who, was, uh, who took the charge to lead the men across France to the front lines to retrieve James Ryan. On the way to retrieving Ryan, Hanks and his troop run into a series of skirmishes and firefights and, and, and with the Germans. And one after another, their guy, the guys of this troop die off and were picked off. Finally, Hanks and his final remaining team show up in this uh, little French town and f- actually find James Ryan. And they catch him and his own unit 
at a crucial moment where they were actually about to take on um, uh, the Germans who, who were doing a counteroffensive. After a brutal battle in the small town, the French town, Tom Hanks lay on the ground dying. And after doing everything to find and protect James Ryan as the last son of a, of a woman back in America, a mother back in America, at the very climax of the movie, Hank says something as his last words to Ryan. And what does he say? Earn this. Earn this. That's what Hank said in the movie. When Hanks and his troop gave everything, he ends it by telling Ryan, earn this. Now, here's the question for us today. As Christians, when we are blessed by God in an amazing, extraordinary level and ways that, well, we couldn't count if we wanted to, how are we as believers to respond to those blessings? Now, let me ask even more. How do believers, even in history of God's people, typically respond to the extraordinary blessings of God? And what does God say to us in the way that we respond to Him in those blessings? Does He say, earn this? Does He say, earn this? Nehemiah gets at the heart of this question as it talks about the very history of God's people couched in a prayer in how they interact with God in the midst of blessings, extraordinary blessings from God himself. The chapter itself is actually an extended prayer of the priests during Nehemiah's time as they were praying over God's people in a season of penitence and change. And the, the part of the prayer that's amazing is they begin the whole thing, as, as Lad preached last week, uh, praising God in verses 1 through uh, 6, or rather, uh, so, yeah, 1 through 6, praising God for how he had created them, how he created the world, he, how he had actually given them Abraham and created them out of this pagan from what is now Iraq, a childless pagan who had nobody and who was really old, in uh, his 75, when God first gave him the promise, he gave him children. And he gave him children with a childless woman uh, in a supernatural way. Then God, uh, after the people co- collected in the place of Egypt for several hundred years, God gathered them together and delivered them from the superpower tyrant of that time, Pharaoh, in a supernatural and extraordinary way. And then the story gets even better as these priests are praying through the story. They talk about how God provided in the wilderness, uh, especially at Sinai, giving God's people the very law, the law that they had heard back in chapter 8 just a few weeks earlier. Now, the wonder of our text is that God earlier had had, uh, or Nehemiah earlier had Ezra speak the law to the people. And then two weeks later, after it had simmered inside for a little while, they came to God with a penitent spirit, with a heart that says, we think about this law over time and we realize we have not lived up to it entirely. That's the real heart and soul of the prayer, is it is a prayer of confession, a prayer admitting the brokenness of the people. And in fact, in verses uh, uh, 16 and following, the prayer takes a distinct turn that talks about how God's people actually responded to the amazing blessings that God had given them through the years. Look at this in verse 16 with me. Uh, uh, the, The priest prayed, they said, but they and our fathers, that is the Israelites, acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Oops, this is a depressing thought. The depressing thought and depressing moment comes in that despite the amazing blessings of God's deliverance that he did throughout the history of their people, what do they do? They turn their hearts against the Lord. What the priests are doing is they are coming clean about 
the sins of their fathers, and I dare say their own sins, and how they had been complicit in their time with that. And, and this is really important stuff, and talked about this a few weeks ago with the kids uh, in Club 4-5. We have to learn the rhythm as Christians of telling the truth, not just about God, but even about ourselves and our need. That's what confession is, is telling the truth about yourself. Now, we live in a world that likes to spin things and makes excuses, uh, blame shifts. You could come up with all kinds of ways to respond to truth about ourselves. But true confession is this, before God, look at what I did against him. I own that. I did that. I am responsible for that before God. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what true confession is all about. The priests in our text are doing that very thing. They're coming clean about the historic sin of God's people and how that plays out throughout their history, the same sins over and over again. And his whole point really is this, that, he, that the priests want to pray through the history of God's people throughout the rest of chapter 9. Now, I'm going to hit a few highlights of that. We can't do all of it today. But I want to highlight right off the bat the, the, the kind of w- the issues that are, uh, the priests highlight in terms of what's going on with God's people when they are falling into sin. And it shows up with, in this way. There are five inward dispositions of sin that he notes and one outward expression of sin. Five inward dispositions and one outward expression of sin. What are the inward dispositions? Well, the first one he says in verse 16, they act presumptuously. Presumption is a, is a misused boldness to actually think of more of yourself than you ought. It is a boldness to do something, carry out something that you are not called to do. The example he gives even in our text is that in Numbers 14, back in the wilderness, God's people, the Israelites, got so tired of following God and Moses and Aaron, they said, we're done. We're going to vote in our own leader and he will lead us back to Egypt where at least we'll have, we can have a variety of food and things to eat. That was presumption because the kingdom of God is not a democracy. You don't vote God in or out as the leader of the church. Second, they were stiff-necked. It says it two times in our text. Stiff-necked means like this, is their unwillingness to turn and look behind them. That's what stiff-neckedness is, is a refusal to turn and to look behind. It is the characteristic of repentance, which we'll talk about in a second. Third, they didn't obey commands. Worse, it goes on to say, they refused to obey God's commands. And then later on, in verse 26, it says they took the law of God and they threw the law of God behind their back as if to say, I don't care about it anymore. I'm doing my own thing and going my own way. This is the kind of thing that shows up in a heart that turns from God and sin. You reject the law of God, the word of God, Because you don't want to deal with God and what he calls us to. Fourth, they didn't remember the Lord. In other words, they weren't mindful of the wonders of God's salvation in their midst. They forgot that it wasn't so long ago that God had just uh, brought them through the Red Sea and delivered them in just an amazing way where God actually overcame the superpower of the time. It would be a lot like overcoming China, even overcoming America with all its power, with God's power. That's what it would be like. It was an extraordinary moment, and they forgot about it. All of these inward dispositions are manifestations of unbelief. Sin uh, among God's people can be very troublesome to us, but even more, it's offensive to God. And that's his whole heart here, is the offense that God was taking to their inward dispositions. But there is one disposition that is most offensive of all that's noted in our text. It is the way that they forsook God. Forsaking is old language in our time, but it is the language of not, of actually disengaging in relationship. You might remember from John 15, abiding is when you stay engaged in relationship. You remain in relationship. You don't leave. 
But forsaking is leaving. It is dissing, if you want to say it from my generation. It is, um, I found out a new word from my son's generation. It is sneak dissing, which is where you actually, in a sneaky way, distance yourself from somebody with other people while never telling them to their own face. That's sneak dissing. In this case, in Nehemiah 9, they, that is the priests, were confessing that they had been forsaking God even back to their father's time. Now, the extraordinary nature of this is it takes a particular form to forsake God in their time and in ours. In fact, the outward expression of their forsaking of God shows up in how they turned away from God to another God in verses 18 through 19. Look at that with me. It says, Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt who had co- and had committed great blasphemies. Blasphemies are severe offenses to God, even to people in many cases. Well, that's what they were doing. And in particular, they were doing it by idolatry. There is the one major expression that is most offensive to God. And the ironic thing is that God had just given them the Ten Commandments to say, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make any graven images. But what are they doing? They go back and they make another God. Graven images. The hard part about this is they weren't listening to God, and they were turning away in their hearts first from God to following this idol. Now think about this. God has just delivered them out of Egypt. He has provided them with the law. He is providing for them food and water in supernatural ways in the desert for a million people. He is protecting them even from attacking and wandering tribes. And how do they respond? They forsake him. They turn their back on him. And as a result, they totally offend him. And you have to ask, is this insane or what? Why would you do this to God? Well, I would submit to you, it's not that insane. It's not that insane for us with wandering hearts. You see, the priests are praying this for a reason. They knew that God's people, yes, even in the church today, like you and me, are capable of wandering from God in our idolatry. Uh, What is that song we sing? We are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Remember, idolatry is always the siren song of our heart. When God doesn't seem to be coming through for us at a certain time without the way we feel, the way we think, what we want in life, it is so, so easy to forsake, stop following him and abiding in him, turn the other way and follow another God and find one that gives us temporary relief. Now, the interesting thing about idolatry in that time and now is this. It usually did not take explicitly evil forms. Idolatry typically takes the form of making the good more important than the greatest in God himself. The good of creation. We are prone in our day to make family, our job, our career, our church, our kids, money, security, Comfort, all good things into ultimate things, even above God himself. And the priests know that. They're praying this in the midst of God's people in that time because they knew, well, my heart will wander anywhere where I can get quick satisfaction and feel good about myself. The real art of following Jesus is coming clean with our proneness to wander, our proneness to pursue the idols. Calvin said it well. He said that our hearts are idol factories. We will manufacture things, even as Christians, so that we can feel better about ourselves and not have to deal with God as our ultimate source of life and hope and how he gives us life on his terms. 
Now, some of you are thinking, well, wait a minute now, how can you be a Christian and also struggle with idolatry? Well, I'll tell you how. Go to the very last verse. We won't go there right now, but go to the last verse of 1 John 5. The last verse of the book of 1 John, and it says this, Little children, do not uh, uh, worship idols. Do not give in to false gods. In other words, John is saying that to a people because he knows even then that Christians, followers of Christ, are prone to idolatry. Now, idolatry goes way beyond just all of us in this room, including me. The number one error that we make in dealing with life, even if we're not a follower of Christ, is this. We think we don't really worship anything, but in point of fact, we are worshiping something, maybe many things. If I were to take from you certain things in your life, one by one, at some point, there would be an emotional, I'll say a passion attachment to that thing that will reveal how close that is to your heart. Now, to be sure, this is not to say that we shouldn't be attached to the gifts of life like our kids and our families. It's not to say we shouldn't appreciate and give thanks for good gifts in life. But it is to say we are prone to raising them above God in idolatry. And that's what the priests we're coming clean with in our text. Our story as Christians is we have to understand that confession about our latent idolatries actually leads to freedom. Sometime back in the, the 1990s, the Chicago Tribune had a front page caption that said this, Guilty plea sets inmate free. Guilty plea sets inmate free. And it goes on to, it went on to explain how a guy had done a plea bargain and, and uh, he got out of serving time. And, and most of us who are law and order types, that would be me, type me, would say, well, there we go again. The system is just letting them get off the hook with a plea bargain and doing something like that. But you have to realize something. The truth is that's our story as Christians. Our story of, as Christians is... Our guilty plea before God sets us free. Our coming clean about what we do to offend God sets us free with him. You see, freedom in Christ is not a plea of innocence. It's a plea of guilt. That's how you get there. Given this, it brings us to yet another question. After all the blessings that God gave the Israelites... And how they had sneak-dissed God, forsaken Him. How does God respond? Well, here's the shocking part of Christianity. Showing up right here in our text. Look at verse 17 with, with me. In 17b it says, You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And God did not forsake His people. Did you catch this? That despite the really horrible way that God's people treated God himself, he responds in an unusual way. And I would suggest he responds in five ways that are his attributes coming right out of our text. And then one particularly unique response to the offensive behavior of the Israelites. One attribute is ready to forgive. I mean, think about that. We live in a world where we hold back our forgiveness like, don't hurt me. Don't get too close. Our God is leaning in. He's eager to forgive. He wants to forgive. The second thing it notes is God's slow to anger. He's patient. He's long-suffering. I like that old King James word. God doesn't go off like the rageaholic who's been offended. He pauses. He waits. He doesn't start a Twitter rant. Third, God is abounding in steadfast love. This word steadfast love is the hesed of God. God's love is not fickle or capricious. He is absolutely faithful to the, his commitment to us, even if we are not 
faithful in our commitment to Him. God's love towards us does not change. It's infinite, eternal, unchangeable. And that is our great hope coming out of this text. Fourth, God does not forsake us. Now, here's the incredible thing. It talks about how God's people have forsaken Him, but it says here, He didn't forsake them. He stayed engaged. And I might even say God not only stays engaged, He pursues us. So that wherever we are in our walks with Him, He is pursuing us with passion. He doesn't stop wanting to be with us. And think about that. This past week, I had two encounters that really got my ire up. I was reminded that I'm a street fighter sometimes and that I, uh, in my heart, I really want justice sometimes. Two experiences. And my immediate response to one of those experiences was retribution. I want to get back at said person. And then the other response in my heart was, I'm going to go on crusade. I'm going to fix this. Neither response was godly, though the anger was, I think, appropriate. And here in this text, we find that despite the forsaking of God's people, he stays totally engaged with them instead of carrying out wrath. This is the gospel. We don't get what we deserve. The fifth characteristic that's noted in our text about God really elucidates this even more and brings it home. God pursues us, but here's the reason why. Because of mercy and grace. How do we understand mercy and grace? We've said this before, I'll remind you again. Justice is getting what we deserve before God in our offense of God. Mercy is not getting what we deserve before God in our offense of God. Grace is a free gift given to us from God despite or really as the opposite of what we deserve before God. Two times in our text, it talks about how God had great mercies. Meaning, then inasmuch as man's sin, our sin, abounds, as Romans 5 said, God's grace, His mercy, superabounds. Like, totally overwhelms it. That's what it's talking about in this text. The priests are praying about God's mercy and grace and pondering how He responds to His people with the opposite of what they deserve. Philip Yancey, uh, during a British conference on comparative religion, talked about how uh, C.S. Lewis came into the conference and helped clarify a lot of things. Apparently, all of these theologians from different religions were talking about Christianity. And was Christianity, in fact, that unique compared to the rest of the religions of the world? And they were going around and saying, well, you know, Christianity has the incarnation, a God coming down and becoming a man. Well, we've got that in other religions in the world. What about resurrection? You've got that. That uh, shows up in Christianity. But oh, what do you know? Resurrection shows up in other uh, religions of the world, world as well. And as they went around and around, they were just on the edge of saying, really, Christianity is just another religion. They're all an amalgam. And really, it's not that unique. But Lewis came in and and uh, as he was at his college and talking with them, he said, what's all the hullabaloo about? What's, what's going on? What are you guys arguing about? And they said, we don't think Christianity is that distinctive. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, it is. In one distinct way, grace. You won't find grace in any other religion where the God actually saves the enemies who resist him. Where the God actually gives the opposite of what they deserve. You won't find that in any other religion. You see, we believe that our God is not a fickle God. That's the way we are with our love and with our relationships with one another sometimes and especially with God himself. We're fickle, capricious, and we get mad if we don't get what we want. But Christianity says this. 
You don't have to earn this from God, this compassion. He gives it freely as a gift to you and me. You see, Christ earned our salvation for us. And he earned it for the people in this time as well. In their hard-heartedness and idolatry, Christ was the ultimate priest coming through for them as he is for us. You see, the job of a priest is not only to pray, but to sacrifice. And that's exactly what Jesus did for you and for me. For the glory of God, he prayed and he sacrificed himself for a people who are giving their hearts over to other gods. That is mind-blowing. You know what that's like, don't you? That's like a man and a woman getting married, and the man's having an affair an hour later. And the woman still loves him. This is crazy love. This is something that we are not used to in our world. But the next question is this. How far does this go? I mean, I've talked about for years with us, the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. How long will God keep on loving you and me? And the reason I ask this is if you walk through the rest of this passage, you will find that God blesses his people in the wilderness with food, drink, protection, He gives them the promised land where they basically walk in to a house that's already furnished, to gardens already sown, to cities already built. It's like instant life. They just show up. He gives them that. They conquer the lands. They enjoy the riches of the lands. And you know what they did after God had saved them and even forgiven them? You know what they did? They fell off in idolatry again. (laughs) Again. In fact, that is the very story of God's people in Israel. They keep falling off the wagon over and over and over again. And how does God respond to this entire story of a broken people who keep forsaking God? Verse 28. He sends saviors. And many times, he delivers the people. Many times he does it. In the time of the judges and the kings, God kept sending little echoes of saviors. And that, of course, points to Christ. The Christ who not only has saved us once and for all in our justification when we receive him, but he keeps saving us in our growth. In our sanctification, he keeps delivering us out of difficult circumstances. You and I need Jesus just as much today as when we first followed him. This is the extraordinary truth of the gospel, that God is relentless in his pursuit of us. Relentless. And you're thinking, wait a minute now. (laughs) I haven't felt God in a while. I'm too busy. I can't even think about God half the time. Why would he even bother with me? I haven't talked to him in weeks. He's like a distant relative. But see, what you don't understand is from this text, you may be running, but God's running after you. He is non-stop in his pursuit of us. Now, it doesn't mean that sometimes, as he did with the people of Israel, he doesn't create temporal judgments, discipline, that interrupts our lives and gets our attention going, well, wait a minute, where am I with the Lord right now? He does that. But it's always to point us to Him, to redirect us to our need for Him. So then, how does this apply to us today? I want to conclude with a few simple illustrations or applications. It is absolutely clear, reading this text, And this is going to be great news for you guys. You ready for this? It is absolutely clear that the church is never the gospel. God's people are never our gospel. In fact, we live in South Charlotte. We live in kind of a, uh, the South Charlotte area where there is a marketplace of churches. And, you know, we all got our uh, programs, uh, marketing programs. There's a place for that. It really is okay. But sometimes we pump church so much that we miss pumping Jesus. 
Our job at Redeemer is not so much to say Redeemer is a swell place, though I hope it is, is to say Christ is the final Savior for all of us. He is the one we gather around. He is the one we find ourselves in. Church is never the gospel. Jesus Christ is our gospel. Second application. It is clear from our text that those who follow Christ and yet for a season of their lives feel dead or numb due to life, due to idolatry, or who feel like they've lost the joy of their salvation, you can cry out to God right now today and ask Him to renew you and to save you again from yourself in many cases. Don't you see, even in the dry and dark times, God wants to redeem us in every circumstance in our lives. God wants us to trust Him in new ways and follow Him in new ways. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, if you're living a life that might even be full of religious activity, but is devoid of Jesus, you need to cry out to God too for the first time. Are you living in the unending world of earnness? Well, I got news for you. It'll never end. It never ends. I've played that game myself even as a Christian. But if you live in the world of the gospel where God through Christ and who is forgiving, abounding in love, slow to anger, and never forsakes us through Jesus Christ. God is the one who says, Jesus earned it for you. That's all you need. In conclusion, there's an old story about Abraham Lincoln. He went to a slave block to buy a slave girl. As a slave girl looked at him... She thought, well, there it is. There's another white man who's going to buy me and use me and abuse me. Lincoln won the bid on the girl and said to the young lady, Young lady, you are free. She said to Lincoln, well, what does that mean? Lincoln said, well, it means you're free. And then she said, does that mean I can say what I want to say? He said, yep. That means you can say what you want to say. She said, does that mean that I can be what I want to be? He said, yep, yep, you can be whatever you want to be. And then she says, does that mean I can go wherever I want to go? And the girl, and, the, and actually Lincoln at that point says, yes, <laughs> you can go wherever you want to go. And the slave girl finally finished by saying, well then... With tears in her eyes, she said, I will go with you. Christ has set us free. We can go with him because he's committed to going with us first. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this time. And we pray now that you would open our hearts again to the wonders of grace. And we pray that you would take what we have uh, thought about today and you would massage it into our hearts because grace is so hard to believe sometimes. It's hard for me. It's hard for us. We are busy people. But would you give us that pause this week to consider how you bought us from slavery in Christ and you gave us life and you continue to give us life despite ourselves because grace is how you function towards us. It is how you move towards us. We don't deserve it. But you're pleased to give it. Give us hearts to receive it again and again and again in Christ's name. Amen. I'd now like to ask David Uran and Celia Uran to come forward. We're coming to a time in our service we're going to call family time. And so, David, I'm going to hand it over to you, and I'm coming down here with you. I've... Uh debated trying to speak this rather than read it. Forgive me, I'm not going to succeed in that. So I'm going to read a letter to you that I've written. Dear Church of the Redeemer family, it is with a deep mixture of sadness, excitement, and trust in God's sovereignty that I bring this announcement to you today. Over the last two years, Silly and I have been praying and talking about our future ministry aspirations.
While we have cherished our eight years of ministry at Redeemer, we have recently sensed God directing us towards a new phase in ministry, specifically senior pastoral ministry. These considerations have come to a head over the last six months as I've begun conversations with a few churches that were searching for a new pastor. Just this past week, after much prayer and counsel from others, I accepted a call to become pastor at Carolina Presbyterian Church in Locust, North Carolina. This position is an interim position with the possibility of becoming long-term senior pastor. Obviously, while we were very excited about this next phase in ministry, we were also very sad to leave Redeemer. For eight years, this church has been our home. Redeemer, both its members and its leaders, have loved us and cared for us very well. The church feels like a family to us and is always hard leaving close family. We are extremely grateful for all the many ways you have shown us love and support over the years. You have prayed for us, loved us, cared for our children, showered us with support, giving us meals. Not only that, but you have uh, allowed me to learn the ropes of being pastoral, of doing pastoral ministry. Uh, you've been gracious to me when I've made mistakes, been encouraging, supportive. You've brought comfort to Celia and I when you knew we needed it. We could not have asked for a better church family. Even as we prepare to leave uh, to go to Locust, Redeemer is very much in our hearts and our prayers. We are praying for Redeemer's future ministry for all the ways Redeemer will continue to bless its, men, its members, its community around us, and, and others throughout the world. I recognize that in God's providence, Redeemer has experienced a great deal of change over the last year with Howard leaving uh, and now myself leaving. And I want to say we are not leaving because we are unhappy with Redeemer. We love this church. Both of us left not to flee Redeemer, but to go to accept another call. In God's sovereignty, he opened up positions for us, and we uh, accepted it, uh, again, with a mixture of sadness and blessing. I can clearly say that all of Redeemer's leaders, Dean, the elders, and the deacons, have been very supportive to us in this time of transition. They have consistently expressed both sadness at my eventual departure and excitement for me at what God's doing in my life. They have been extremely encouraging and supportive of Celia and I during this time of transition and have uh, encouraged me to follow God's leading. I am praying for Redeemer's future. Big transitions are always challenging. But I believe God will continue to show his faithfulness to his church, to continue to bless Redeemer, to continue to provide for Redeemer the leadership it needs from Dean, from the session, from the deacons, as well as new leaders that he will bring to this church. I will continue to be here over the next several weeks until my last Sunday, September 14th. Thanks again for blessing me with my family beyond, uh, blessing me and my family beyond measure. We will never forget this church or its deep impact on our lives in Christ. I want to close one, one, one thing reading uh, from Philippians chapter 1. It's three verses. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every pr- prayer of mine for you, for making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from this first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Amen. Okay, so uh, I did my best to poison the well in the PCA so he couldn't leave, but it didn't work. So, uh, now actually, I want to say with all sincerity, we are truly excited about what Dave is going to do. Watching him turn into basically a senior pastor over the last few years has been amazing. And I am honored to be a part of that. Years ago, we started praying, Lord, help us with our connection to the seminary and all these young guys who want to do full-time ministry. Help us to be ascending church. I didn't anticipate that guys would leave within four months, the two pastors. But in God's grace, he's given us, that's his timing, and that's the way it goes. So... Um, just so you know, next steps, we're going to have a goodbye party at some point. We have to determine that uh, for them in the next month or so, so be patient with that. Um, also, we're going to form a, a search committee to help fill David's position. 
because uh, he's going to leave. I mean, Howard and all the guys who've left through the years um, have left holes, real holes. But Dave is going to leave a gaping hole, and we're going to feel it. And um, we're going to start a search. If you're interested in being a part of that, we'll have some appointed people on that search committee, as well as those of you who are interested in being a part of it. Let me know. Uh, also, let me see what else I wanted to note. I think the thing that I would call us to do at this point is actually to think about, in this next month as David and Celia leave, to think about the wonders of what God's done in our midst through his ministry, to celebrate that and thank God for that, to also mourn. Because inasmuch as we celebrate and mourn deeply, we'll be able to let him go (laughs) and let him go and do the next thing. And then when the next guy comes in, whoever that'll be, he'll be able to fill the position in a way that we can celebrate his ministry as well. So I encourage you to celebrate, to mourn, and to love them well over the next month. Besides, they'll be up just up the road at uh, Carolina Perez and Locust. They won't be far. And David needs a lot of prayer. This is going to be a demanding work. He is going to be a part of the healing of a church that's had major division. So we're going to pray to that end even now. And uh, let me close this with a prayer here. Lord Jesus, we are approaching you with distinct mixed feelings, all of us here. Yet we glory in you that you move the pieces of your people and your leaders all around the chessboard of your kingdom to advance your kingdom and to work in your church. And we, Lord, have had the privilege of raising up and seeing you work in our midst to send off pastors. A glory to you for David, um, for the years of his ministry. And we pray now that as we spend these next few weeks thinking through the implications of this as a body, that you also would help us to mourn and celebrate, to lament and smile, because you are working in our midst in ways we just sometimes don't realize. Glory to you, Lord Christ, for our brother and our sister, for all they've meant to us in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand with us as we close the service. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave His Son.
today deliver us just as we did the first time we met him also uh if you want to come down say hello to the urans you're going to get multiple shots over the next few weeks and uh, months but uh please feel free to do that as well and i would just say welcome to redeemer the emotional roller coaster ride (laughs) this is our church but remember just what we just sang and the gospel you've heard god's love doesn't change in the midst of all this nothing has changed about him in the midst of our change Glory to him for that. Now hear the benediction. Oh, one last thing. Ray Arvin would rightly remind me. In two weeks, we're going to have a congregational meeting uh, to talk about David and to dissolve the relationship with him so he can be freed up to go to his call at uh, Carolina Press. So September the 7th, we're going to have a meeting. Let's, let's uh, hear the benediction of our Lord now. May the God of peace, who gives you grace,